Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Welcome to everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we're going to be speaking today about this display, Adelaide Call. I'm going to speak for a little while, but most of the, the talk will be in conversation with uh, our special guest, John Dowitz, who has, has joined us, uh, which is very, very exciting and wonderful indeed. So my name is Tracy Locke. I'm the curator of Australian art here at the Art Gallery of South Australia. And I, along with Elle Freak, the associate curator, put this exhibition or this display together last year. It is called Adelaide Cool. And essentially, almost all of the objects that you see in this particular space relate to a very tight time period. So they span mostly from around 1967 to 69. And there is a reason for that, because the works in this room really relate to a flourish of activity that ended quite dramatically at the end of 1969. Essentially, as well, what you're looking at around this space is the work of uh, the father and son artists, David Dowitz and John Dowitz. On this side of the space, over here to my left, is mostly the work around the walls are by David, and on this side of the space, by John. And uh, we were just talking earlier that often identities can get a little bit uh, confused. Um, but in any event, I want to briefly talk about the biographies of the artists, uh, why we staged this exhibition, and a little bit about the sort of overwhelming, or if you like, the international context of these kinds of geometric abstract works. So first of all, with regard to um, father, David Dowitz, his work over here on this side of the space, David is really regarded as a, a, a major figure in South Australian modernism. And he was born in 1914. He passed away in 2003. He studied at um, the South Australian School of Art and his career was as a teacher, but also he worked as a painter um, and a printmaker, but was a renowned jazz musician and jazz composer. And on the screen, just over here in the corner, uh, is an, a, a little iPad that's got some images of some of the parties that were staged at David Dowitz's home. And um, essentially, David Dowitz, with his passion and interest for art and his studies, and he spent many, many years also working as a, a high school teacher at Adelaide Tech High School, uh, eventually securing work in about 1966 as a, a lecturer and teacher at the South Australian School of Art. Um, he was really an inspiring and driving force within Adelaide during that period, sort of the 1930s, 1940s and 1950s. And I allude to the, the images of the parties uh, that were staged at the Dowitz's home at Seacliff here in Adelaide. And, you know, that's kind of fun and it's light-hearted that there were these wonderful parties. But the other aspect of those parties was it points to David Dowitz's household and, and Joan, his wife. 
They were like transmitters of information. They ha were traveling quite widely. They had, uh, throughout their lifetime, Joan and the family and, and David, they traveled overseas 11 times, and they were tapped into the most innovative and the most radical ideas that were occurring, not in Adelaide, but around the world. So at that, th those parties and associating with their artist friends, um, certainly like Ivor Francis and people like Max Harris, very influential, um, artists like Dora Chapman, Jeff Wilson, and I could go on and on. But essentially they were the wellspring of inspiring modernist radical ideas in Adelaide, open to new ideas, and they shared their information. Returning from overseas many times, they had colour slides back in the time, pre-internet, and uh, they would share their coloured slides of and the information about their travels overseas, the, the exhibitions they saw and the books that they bought were shared. And in addition to those travels and sharing of that information, they subscribed uh, with Max Harris at his um, bookshop and they... Um, they subscribed to journals exactly like this, such as Loy, a French journal, and also um, this one, Studio International. So these were coming directly into Adelaide through Max Harris's bookshop and um, read and looked at and poured over, in fact, as John described, by artists within Adelaide. So they were receiving, inputting a new information from London, Paris and, and America, and they were sharing that information. So that's kind of a little bit of a, a sketch of, of David. Um, he, then of course, John, uh, being part of that milieu, part of that exciting hub at the household, picked up and absorbed many of those ideas and himself pursued a career as a photographer and as an artist and as a designer and most interestingly and most extensively the last more than 25 years, John has been working as an archivist. And I might talk about that aspect and the point of that at, towards the end of the talk, but it's all relevant. That's handy, I might put my notes down. By the way, um, the Art Gallery of South Australia staged a wonderful retrospective of David Dowitz's works in 1995, and there's a lovely catalogue that's still available uh, that talks about David's work and, and wonderful illustrations. If anybody's interested, I just wanted to point that out. So, the reason we have had this exhibition came about by chance. I received a phone call from John um, around January, February of last year, ringing up saying, Tracy, are you aware that 2019 marks 50 years since David Dowitz, John's father, exhibited his wonderful painting, Blue Flash? And it's like, 50 years and, and we both agreed that we really should do something to celebrate that moment. Of course, Blue Flash is some, a work that's almost never off our walls and it's behind you here uh, on that back wall, the pink, red and blue abstract painting and it's a great 
gallery favourite, but it had been 50 years. So uh, one thing led to another, and Elle and I went to visit Dora and, and John Dowitz down on the Flurio, and as we were walking around the house, I said to, to John, well, you know, who's this work here, or tell me about this work? And he said, oh, no, they're mine. They're my paintings, my abstracts. And I'm like, I had no idea that John had produced this body of work from the 1960s. And in fact, I worked out, John, that your paintings haven't been displayed, in fact, your abstract paintings in Adelaide for about 53 years. So this is a really, it's like a, a wonderful um, window into this unknown moment in Adelaide abstraction. So we know of the work of um, Sydney Ball and Margaret Worth and, and their relationship to, to, to lecturing here in Adelaide and, and, and moving on and being, both being born here. But the works, the hard-edged works of, of David's, I had no idea David had produced so many abstracts and I had no idea John had even worked as, as a painter. So it was a wow moment to visit, visit John and we put the shoulder to the wheel to really bring this story to uh, Adelaide's public and to the notice. So it's kind of been, if you like, a lost story and it goes to show the incredible power and innovation and that sort of level of exploring geometric abstraction in Adelaide uh, for that time. But again, it ended abruptly. And I'll, I'll go into that a little bit later, but we have John here, uh, which is really special. So I, instead of me sort of continuing at this point, it would be really lovely to perhaps uh, invite John to talk a little bit about his experiences of growing up and what inspired him to become an artist and, and a painter and what was that atmosphere like in the Dowitz household. Thank you, Tracy. <clears throat> I'm glad you told me what I had to talk about. I've been wondering for the last 24 hours what we were going to say. Um, I'd like to add to Tracy's comments about my work and its invisibility and its rarity in, in Adelaide and to point out that although there's been nothing of my work exhibited in Adelaide since for 53 years, these three big paintings here have never been exhibited in Adelaide ever before, not 53, not any years. The last exhibition of paintings I had in Adelaide was in uh, 1965 at Kimber Nithen's gallery, and there's a little orange painting in the in the uh, box in the glass case there, which is that one, is one of those. So that series of paintings, abstracted abstracted landscapes, um, were the last that I exhibited in Adelaide, and these ones have never been shown before. So it's been great. It was very pleasing for me to have somebody saying we're, that she, they're actually interested in them. <laughs> um, I, I, after my artist's talk um, a, a month or so ago, a couple of, uh, yeah, early fe February, um, I found that I had spoken thinking about my father's work a lot and at the end of the day, people, a couple of people came up to me and said, well, you didn't talk about your work um, or 
why did you do this? Um, did, you, did you have a, a ph philosophy, an idea? Were you working along a, a direction that you had planned? Did you plan these paintings? Or how, you know, how did they come about? So I thought that was something that I needed to um, fill in a little bit. So Tracy has also painted a bit of a picture of, of the parties and the, the combination of jazz and art and, and, and all the ideas that went around our, our two houses at Seacliff. The first house was called the Jazz House mm -hmm. and that's, um, that was in, in Seacliff, it's still there. Um, and that was where my, my parents purchased a little bungalow in, in, the, in, in the late 1930s when they were married, 1938. And I was born in 1941. Um, and I can remember that house. Uh, we moved out of it in 1954. And, uh, but during those early, my first 13 years, that I remember that house vividly. And the very first artwork, a contemporary artwork that I became aware of at all, and it was something that fascinated me from the age of two or three years old, was a large piece of cardboard, nearly as big as one of those paintings, where my father had copied a Picasso in gouache from a, from a small reproduction in a, in a book, no doubt from Max Harris, and he had um, copied the three musicians. And I thought I'd have a look and see whether I remembered that. And I had a look online, and there were two versions of, the, of Picasso's three musicians painted in 1921. And one, was, uh, one is in uh, Museum of Modern Art in New York, and that's the one that he copied. So there was this second-hand piece of cardboard with this very perfect uh, gouache copy of, of the Picasso above our mantelpiece for all of the first 13 years of my life. And I was fascinated by that. So, so I, I really loved abstract art from the age of about three or four. And by the time I was in... 10, 11, 12, art was still going on all around me. The Picasso was still up on the wall. This Picasso was a, a very hard-edged Picasso. It, it, it was, it, it's, and it was three musicians, so that the relationship between jazz and art was, was really embodied in that, in that painting. It was one of his uh, Cubist works, uh, a very, a very hard-edged Cubist work of Picasso. So, but by the time I was uh, 10, 11, I was obviously influenced that everybody around me was, was an artist. We had people coming to visit John Dowie and Ivor Francis and Douglas Roberts and all Adelaide artists of the time. And, and I obviously admired these people and I needed to do something. So, so I started painting, but all of those paintings were um, those first paintings were quite abstract. I, I also, we also knew Clement Meadmore from Melbourne, who used to come to visit. And Clement was a solid abstractionist, never did anything else. Um, many of the Adelaide, Adelaide, other Adelaide artists were figurative, 
as was my father at the time. But I really was struck by this the colour and shape and, and, and I, I couldn't get my eyes off that, that Picasso painting. And then in the... So, so I was doing little designs and little gouache as, and things with, with abstract shapes. Um, there are a couple of from teenage works in one of these cases here of, of some coloured, little coloured paintings that I did in, in the 50s. But it was in the 50s, late 50s, that Max Harris um, started to bring in um, books to us and the Lerl magazine. And it was in Lerl where I first saw paintings from the School of Paris, which were Alfred Manessier, Bazin, Hartung, people whom you never hear of anymore. But during the, during the late the 50s and 60s, um, they were they were very prominent painters, and then you had the school of uh, the school of New York with with Clifford Still and all the famous American abstract painters. So these things were coming into our house, uh, firstly through Lerl, and then later through the Art International and Studio International. And you couldn't help. I I, I, I was really deeply moved as I opened the pages of this journal that would come in. There'd only be, there'd only be one or two contemporary illustrations in every edition of Lerl, which came out, I think it was four, four times a year. And, and I, 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 I sometimes almost cried when I just saw these coloured illustrations, because coloured illustrations were very expensive at the time, and that was an expensive magazine. Um, but Max Harris had impeccable taste and incredible uh, understanding of, of culture and art, and so he brought in the very best of books. The other one, which was, which was my Bible, was called Art Since 1945. That was published in around 1959. It has no date on it. It's a Thames and Hudson big thick book, I can never forget it, I've still got it, that copy, and uh, through my father's personal library I've still got art since 1945, and that broadened what Lerl had started me, because that brought in America and Germany and Italy and all these other places who were doing abstract art, and and I can just see the brush strokes, I could see the hard edges, the soft edges, and Mark Rothko and people like that that I'd never heard of before. And, and they literally did make me cry. So I didn't have any plan at all. It was just um, driven. I was driven to, to say, well, I, why aren't I? I want to do these things too. Because as I was doing them, I was sort of feeling the same as I was feeling when I read the things in the book. So I didn't sit down and say, um, I'm going to paint a triangle today or a square or a circle. I just got out brushes and I just got out pieces of paper and I stuck them onto each other and I did things. And quite often I wouldn't have any idea what was going to happen until the next day or the day after. And then quite often after a couple of days I'd decide, no, that, that isn't as good as 
as a Hans Hartung at all. It's mm -hmm. not anywhere near as good as an Alfred Manessier. I'm going to do something else. So I just, but we didn't have any money, didn't have any space. So I would just paint it white over it again and, and, and start something else and, and keep doing it. And when I got to a point where I've, I've really felt that I, I loved that one and I'd have it standing up, my father would come around and he'd say, oh, that's a good one, or he'd say, oh, you can get rid of that one. And, you know, and I'd do the same to him, you know, I'd be 14 and I'd go and say, oh, that's not very good. And, and so we had this lovely, it was a great relationship because he was a teacher and, and, and he, he respected his students as much as they respected him. So his secondary school students and his art school students became great friends and for life and, um, and good teachers do that. Uh, so, so his, I was always treated exactly the same as any other member of anybody else who visited our house. I was treated the same as Ivor, and Ivor Francis would say the same things to me. Do I like, you know, what did, what did, what did he, I think of that painting, you know? Did, he, did I think he, it was okay? And um, so that was a sort of a, it was an incredible um, life at the time, and and it was an inspiring sort of uh, atmosphere to be to be working in. But going back to that answer, you know, that question that I got at the end of last uh, talk, what, did you have a plan for these things? You know, did you set them out and plan them? The question, the answer is absolutely not. That I never knew what I would be heading for in the next year. I would just try something out and I would like it and then I'd say I'll do some more of those and that then becomes an exhibition. So if you look in the glass cases here, you'll see a lot of little colour sketches. And I mean these, these, were, these were just done with, not with the idea necessarily that they were going to be a big one, they were just me trying out colours, seeing what sort of an emotional, emotional response those colours gave me. I must say that I suppose I was attracted to minimalism in a sense that, and, and because I'd actually had spent already many years photographing and developing an interest in a, in a, in a kind of an abstract photography where you extract something out of nature which, which removes everything, everything else except what you're looking at in the camera. And that, and, and I became more and more attracted to seeing things in the camera and capturing them at that second where you, if you looked somewhere else, you wouldn't see it. Um, but there was a, something emotional about it. I felt very strongly looking at a, a brown rock with some little cracks in it or something up really close. And I felt the same about that as I did when I looked at an Alfred Manessier painting or, a, or a Ant Antonio Tapies uh, from Spain. And when you look at some of those people's works, they do look like little close-ups of nature and, and, and these things went hand in hand with me. So when I, when I actually... Um, when I actually came to think about, well, why am I doing this? I seem to have come this way with my photography and it's exactly the same with my artwork and it, and it wasn't planned, 
it just became an obsession to isolate colour and form and, and eliminate uh, influences of, of poeticism or anything else. Just looking at something which, which inspired me and made me feel happy or sad or, or it just was very emotional at, attachment and that was where the photography and you'll see there's a there's an example of one of my close-up photographs with the painting with a painting which was done hand in hand sketches done also at the same time where where I was just trying to um, at the spur of the moment having seen my, something in the camera capturing it on film but then also thinking well I can make something different again out of it with the same sort of minimal um, approach. John, so that was really w where, where all this started and came from. And thank you, John. What, what I was thinking as you were speaking, uh, what would be perhaps helpful also for the audience to understand is those very private pursuits and the enthusiasm and the rigour that you had for pursuing geometric abstraction at that time. It was also an international movement. It was sweeping across the world this interest in pursuing whether they, ref whether you want to have it referred to as hard edge abstraction, painterly geometric abstraction, uh, whatever. But it was John and David were engaged in an international movement. Now. Two points I'd like to make there, John, if I may, is that today in London or Paris as well elsewhere, John and David's work during that time is now regarded, um, it's having significance and understanding in a global context. So decades and decades ago, this flourish of abstraction would have been get regarded as kind of a provincial version of what was going on in Paris or what was going on in New York. Today there's been a massive shift in our understanding of art history and there's been this flip between centre and periphery. For example, Forthcoming is a global exhibition of surrealism being staged between the Metropolitan and the Tate galleries and they are going to have an entire chapter dedicated to Antipodean surrealism. For example, if they were going to a stage, uh, a big exhibition of, of abstraction, global abstraction, this moment here in Adelaide would be regarded equally as important to that bigger story. And if I may now just briefly go back to um, why it was John, with his passion and his dedication and talent and skill and intensity of working, would suddenly evaporate. And it's because two things. When David, uh, John's father, staged his exhibition of his abstract works, his hard-edge abstract works, 14 paintings he sent to Sydney at Central Street Gallery, Great show, and it's all documented on the iPad here. Not one painting sold. 
So, you know, to put that effort in and to push the boundaries of what people were understanding as painting and to come back from Sydney and not have one thing sell. So there was no audience, there was no support for it. He was ahead of his time in a way. John, on the other hand, had quite good success, sold his works, three exhibitions also in 1969, all the same year. But at the end of it, very inspired, really, John, uh, John went off to Italy, he, he'll tell the story better than me, but he went and hunted down through his network one of the most radical architects and designers working in Italy at the time, in Florence, and showed this person, I've forgotten his name, I'm sorry. Cristiano Teraldo di Francia from uh, Super Studio, Super in, Studio. in Florence. So, flipping through the portfolio, the, the answer was, well, yeah, this is, your work's fantastic, but why bother? Why do it? And, and so John had um, a rethink because, based in Europe, they were saying, look, go back and, and capture something about your own country, the essence of your own country. So, almost overnight, John dedicated his life to archiving... Um, and, and going in, and eventually becoming an archivist of the Anangu, Pitanjara, Yankajara lands and, and, and culture. So that's fine. But John, in doing that, abandoning his painting practice, also links into a wider debate that was happening and circling around the world about that was this, this great shift into um, flight from the object, you know, which Donald. Um, Brooke was, was talking about, certainly in Sydney. There are a lot of debates. We had Clement Greenberg, uh, the celebrity critic, flew into Sydney and he delivered a, a lecture at the Power Institute all about geometric abstraction. And in doing so, coming out from America, legitimised this hard-edged painting practice. But in the same lecture, he also indicated that moment was over. So, you know, there's a lot of confusion. The following year, as a complete retort to what Clement Greenberg was saying, is Don, uh, Donald Brooke comes in and he has delivers a, a lecture about flight from the object and he announces within Australia a pursuit of into conceptualism and, and ideas and practice that was identity-based, personal-based, and practice as an artist that was more about documenting. And in doing so, your work was then regarded as not provincial, but um, cosmopolitan and, and international. So within John's, you know, decision-making and interests and passions, there's this crisis of confidence that occurs. David comes back from Sydney never ever returns to hard edge painting again, but spends the rest of his, what, 40, 50 years returning to figuration. So you've got all these polarizing schools, you know, abstraction versus figuration, internationalism versus nationalism, and all this flying around. And it was a very much important moment within Australia, but also within the world, and in terms of painting practice. So I just wanted to sort of say, well, this was an important moment. It didn't last, it ended, but in doing so, it pretty much followed what was happening elsewhere around the world.
Thank you. And uh, as I say again, I'm glad that um, Tracy knows all this because I never heard of it before. <laughs> so it's been great working with Tracy and Elle and uh, been an inspiration to me as well as an eye opener, you know. How, who's Clement Greenberg, you know? Who, who, <laughs> Donald Brook, I remember those characters, yes, yes. But I never, I never had no influence whatsoever on me one way or another. Mine had already come from from Cristiano in Florence, who sadly passed away last year. Uh, but that whole movement of, of Italian design, um, you know, I thought I was, I'd, I'd been doing these things for several years and I thought, I'm gonna take all this to Italy, I wanna show them what I'm doing. And, and, and I, th this was really surprising, this, this response I got and said, well, haven't you read what we're writing about? We're telling you that consumerism is finished, it's time to stop producing things, stop it, don't produce anymore, go back and look after the great qualities that Australia has. You've got a landscape, you've got incredible environment, animals and plants, and you've got an Aboriginal culture which is quite different from anything in the world. We lost all of this 3,000 years ago, and, and you've still got it in Australia, so for heaven's sake, go back and look after it, and don't worry about all this lovely stuff that you've been doing, do something else. And that's what I did. So that's where we are today. So we might, um, we might conclude there. Some of you may have some questions. I think just, I guess one thing I wanted to just point out to you is that there is an incredible amount of knowledge and colour theory and understanding of painting practice that's very evident on the walls here. This is why the works are so... Uh, so strong to you. For example, um, this kind of movement, if you like, of geometric abstraction was very much characterised by a focus on dedicated fields of colour that were clearly defined. Very, very different to uh, abstraction that relates to cubism and so forth, which was about the internal relationships of form within the composition. So these works are very indicative of the period, but also in the, work, in the way that they play with colour. And one really interesting thing for you to sit, perhaps see is, is an observation from John is David's work over here with the big yellow circle is titled Positive Yellow. And um, this work here by John is called Blue Oblique. And what you'll notice with David's title is it being positive yellow, it means the yellow optically is pushing forward. And very interestingly with uh, John's work here, the warm colour, the, the dominant colour, uh, is he's placed these overlapping geometric forms over the top. So his kind of forward pushing colour has been pushed back. So these kind of tensions and visual relationships uh, you know, we could literally talk about some of these works for an hour and dissect them. They're incredibly complex and incredibly sophisticated paintings. So, um, anyway, I won't, I won't go further to that because we've been talking enough, but perhaps we'll um, go to the audience and see if there's any questions for, for John. We, uh, 
Yes, we, we, we glossed over the dresses a bit. Um, in, the, in that period of post-1965, 66, well, finding that nobody was interested in my art in Adelaide, I did need to have an income. And my wife at the time was very interested in fashion. So I said, well, let's have a go at um, seeing if we can get some of my designs printed up in Australia and um, uh, we'll, between us we'll, we'll work out some simple clothing which, uh, which highlights the, the design, my abstract designs. So in the corner, the, the, the far one there in um, the two-tone blue and, blue and green triangles and circles, that was the very first piece of um, silkscreen printing that I had done, working with designs, and there are some of those designs, the sketches are in the boxes in these cases. The fashion at the time was the shift, which was, which was the, the 60s, the mid-60s, everything was, was shifts. They were either long shifts or short shifts, or sometimes with short sleeves, and, but they were shifts, basically. Um, and, and that fabric was um, printed in Melbourne. Uh, we, we found a, I found a silk screen printer in Melbourne and I, I chose to uh, do it on a, on a very transparent thin fabric and have a, an under dress as well. So this was just an outer layer. And that proved to be so difficult, the poor screen printer, he had, these, he had one table just a bit longer than this room in a, in a, in a upstairs uh, over the top of a design shop in, in uh, Turak. And uh, he, he found that his normal silk screen printing concept didn't, didn't work because the fabric was, uh, it's, it's, it's a um, chiffon, so that it, um, the, the, the ink went straight through went straight through onto his table so that most of the, most of the design was left on the table and a little bit, little bit stayed on the fabric. So he developed then the technique that he, he would have to lift the fabric very carefully so it didn't smudge, lift the fabric, hang it across the ceiling of the shop, then clean the whole table and then wait for next day for the fabric to dry before he could put it down again and, and print the second colour. Then he'd have to lift it again very carefully so it didn't smudge and, and, and wash the table. So within a few days we decided that this was really not a viable thing. Didn't, so that is a very laugh. rare piece of fabric. <laughs> um, so for every length we, we didn't succeed in stopping the smudging totally. So out of a, 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 a 20 metre length of fabric we might have only got three or four dresses out of it. So there's only, we only built, did a half a dozen of those at all. And, and luckily, the art galleries ended up with one. We have, which we're delighted with, thank you. <laughs> and uh, the, so, so the next, having found that very difficult, I was also then um, very impressed with some French, a French designer, uh, in, uh, that came th in through the um, newspapers and, mag and, and fashion magazines um, who had a 
who used sort of made dresses out of palettes that we would call them. And uh, so I went to a local badge making firm whom I had met up with for other reasons and I found that he was, he, he was able to stamp out little coloured pieces of plastic because that's what you make badges out of. So he had two sizes for his badges and that's those two different sizes of fabric, of, of plastic discs. And uh, I then put together combinations of, of, uh, of, of those designs. And it, then it wasn't until a couple of years later that we thought we'll have another go at the printing. So these other pieces of fabric are a much simpler um, uh, printing technique. That is a, a plain cotton, pure cotton, with a silk screen where cotton ink printing, ink printing onto cotton, and there's some more samples in the case, um, was a much more straightforward thing. And I was able to go to a, a company, uh, Donald Clark, who used to print all of the tea towels that you ever saw in any souvenir shop anywhere in Australia. You look at a tea towel with a kangaroo on it, or eucla, or or Mount Gambier, or anywhere you go, it, during the 1960s and 70s, they were always had under them, printed by Donald Clark, Sydney. So I was able to let Donald Clark do something quite different from tea towels, but he had the technique perfectly, and that worked really well. The only trouble was that nobody wanted them, um, <laughs> apart from our friends. So, so we stopped. And was there a, another question? Yes. to reveal trade secrets. You go right today. ahead, now's the moment. Um, the, uh, the masking tape, my father was the first one out of us to start uh, to try the masking tape. Uh, you'll see in my 1965 painting and David's 1967 painting in that box, they're not masking tapes. We both actually enjoyed painting straight lines. We loved painting straight lines anyway. But he then, saw that, that other international artists were using masking tape. Sid Ball was using masking tape. So we had people around us who were well pioneering masking tape. And we then had to solve that problem. The problem with the masking tape is that you always had one colour on first and then you would put the masking tape and you would then put your second colour. But masking tape, canvas is ripply and masking tape is paper and, and you can't actually get a 100% seal. So it means that when you come and put the second colour on, the first great painting you do, all underneath the masking tape, the second colour is crept in, smeared in underneath, attracted by the little grooves in the masking tape and the canvas. So we then, we then um, realised that we, we, there were different ways of dealing with that. 
And one of the most successful was to use the same colour underneath as a little undercoat. So what you were doing is actually sealing the edge of the masking tape. So in this painting, for example, um, I'm trying to remember which one went first. The Only orange, John can the touch this painting, last. by the way. The orange colour was, was last. So, so in, a, in a situation like this, I would paint the green, the green square, I would then carefully mask there and there, then I would get the green again and I'd just paint just over the edge. So if anything crept underneath, it was the same colour, it was green. I'd still have it mixed, it would be the next thing I would do, I'd have a, make sure I had a little bit of touch-up left over. I'd paint the green underneath, then, so you've got a piece of masking tape. Then you can be as rough as you like with the orange because you've already protected the edge, the sharp edge. So once the orange had dried, you just peel off the masking tape and, and if anything had gone underneath, it'll be, it'll be the same colour anyway. But before we came to that conclusion, we tried other things. We tried painting it white first to seal the edge. The whole point was to seal the edge of the masking tape so the next layer didn't creep underneath. We also tried what seemed to be the right thing was to paint a, a, a clear glaze on the edge of the masking tape to, sol to solve that creeping problem. I've got a painting which Tracy has seen, I think, and I've certainly got photographs of it, of my father's, a beautiful little triangular painting where it, I've got photos of it from 1967 and it's a, a beautiful little painting in, in orange and grey and white and black. And uh, now, today, I go and look at it in the studio, in my, in my storage, and that little piece of glaze was, which he put underneath has gone brown. So now, instead of having or, uh, orange creeping under the green, you've got brown streaks because David was not in the least bit interested in um, uh, archival practices and it was lucky any of them survived at all because he didn't, wasn't interested in, in the materials, he was interested in the effects that he got as a painter and he just used an off, uh, out of the hardware store, uh, uh, you know, a uh, a water-based um, wallpaper sealer, which wasn't designed to last for more than 10 or 20 years. So 50 years later, that's all gone brown. So to restore that, that has to be just, we, the only thing to do is to paint over it. You can't get rid of it, it's gone rock hard. So that's, you know, the tricks, the little things that you had to learn and they weren't in the books. That wasn't in Lerl or Art International. That's right. You had to work that one out yourself. That's right. I think what that points to, too, is this... Um, not only did they have the knowledge and so forth, they also had that expertise and, and the skill. Um, but maybe I'll, I'll just conclude to say that, thank goodness, David did have a son who's an expert archivist. And, um, and in fact, it's really due to the work of John that these paintings that you see on the wall with blue flash as an exception, um, it's due to John's efforts and care 
and expertise that they have survived. So um, it's, it's a really wonderful thing and they are treasures of our cultural history here in South Australia. And so perhaps, uh, maybe at this point, it would be great for you to join me and, and thank John for his archiving and his talk. Thank you.